Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. So hypothetically, if a giant spider with the face of the president were eating your soul in small bites, what would you suggest serving alongside of it? Uh... What sauce? Mm, like a, a, a like a, like a yes. Sancho chili, maybe. Ooh, very <laughs> oh, spicy. Spicy soul. Mm-hmm. Spicy soul, I like that. That's good. I think a fine wine. A fine wine, a yes. nice Chianti. Oh, I knew we were going to the Chianti. <laughs> no, not a Chianti. Some it's fava all wrong. beans. Some fava beans. <laughs> I'm thinking maybe like a nice like Costa Brown Pinot Noir 2013 Russian River. I, I always imagine good. Trump just blending up people's souls and slurping it down with a, a sh- Like a smoothie. smoothie. Right. I yes. object to the premise with that some, it's bites. Yeah, okay. Well, high in protein. Hello, and welcome to Rational Security, the eating your soul in small bites edition. I'm Shane Harris, and when I eat my soul, I always do it in small bites. Can you ever eat your own soul, or is it other? Just is this Auto true? Soul cannibalism. Yeah, I feel like my soul would probably be the one I would want to start with. I wouldn't want to have to eat someone else's. They should might we, eat it. Should we explain what we're talking right, I'm about? I'm imagining the listeners. <laughs> have no idea what we're talking I see, about. <laughs> I see why am I? <laughs> uh, former FBI Director Jim Comey wrote an op-ed apparently during the lunch break of the Bill Barr. Yeah, hearing. he turned that off fast. Yeah. By the way, I just want to say he could. Be, that's a hell of an op-ed just at a stylistic level. Yes, just it is. So basically it's an extended metaphor of President Trump as – I say giant spider because he talks about him weaving webs tighter around people and basically eating their souls. He's a dementor. The that's president is a him. dementor. It's a vivid image. Uh, I am here in the New Jungle studio with my friends Tamara Kaufman, Wittis Ben Wittis, and Susan Hennessy. Hi, guys. Hi. Hi. Do you remember the spell that repels dementors in the Harry Potter books? I'm not really familiar with the, the animal one. Litany. The Patronus charm. Oh, the Patronus oh. charm. I Parents of children who are old enough for Harry Potter <laughs> books a few years ago uh-huh. have this stuff imprinted on yeah. our souls, you know, if if not – so that when other people eat them in small bites, they get pieces of this stuff. That's very practical knowledge for raising children. On the podcast this week, special counsel Robert Mueller told the attorney general that he failed to convey the, quote, context, nature, and substance of his investigation. Rod Rosenstein steps down from the Justice Department and bids President Trump a fond farewell. And is John Bolton's view of foreign policy compatible with the president he serves? Um, let's start with Mueller and Barr and now Jim Comey's in the mix. I think as we record this, I think Bill Barr, the attorney general, is still testifying before the Senate Judiciary Committee and has faced uh, questioning along pretty predictable partisan lines, uh, a lot of which focused, of course, uh, both on this letter uh, that I think the Washington Post was first to report 
on Tuesday, um, where Robert Mueller took issue with the way that the attorney general had characterized in that four-page letter uh, the findings of the report. And I'll just read quickly from it where these are Mueller's words. The summary letter that the department sent to Congress and released to the public late in the afternoon of March 24 did not fully capture the context, nature, and substance of this office's works and conclusions. Uh, He goes on to say there is now public confusion about critical aspects of the results of our investigation. This threatens to undermine a central purpose for which the department appointed the special counsel to assure full public confidence in the outcome of the investigations. So we didn't we I think we suspected based on reporting well we knew that there were people on Mueller's team that had concerns and took issue with the way Barr had characterized the report in his four-page summary. Now we understand that one of those people was Bob Mueller and he conveyed that to the attorney general in writing and they also had a phone call about it. So Ben, let me just start with this with you. Do you think that Barr based on what we know now, in his four-page letter about these principal conclusions, did he accurately characterize them and convey the findings of the report? And if he did not, then why did he do what he did? All right. So I, I, I can only give you a very complicated answer to this question, although the actual answer is quite simple, which is no, his description in the letter and in the press conference that followed the letter and continuing into his testimony today was uh, deeply dishonest as a representation of what was in the report. That said, I think pinning down the dishonesty is important and because what the dishonesty is not, and everybody wants him to have committed perjury or to have said something that was, you know, inaccurate, there's no sentence in those materials that is individually false. Right. There's no he's not misquoting the special counsel. He's not saying that the special counsel found something that he didn't find or didn't find something that he did find. He's not uh, with one exception that I can name. He's not grossly mischaracterizing uh, something that happened, although there is one example of that. Mostly what he is doing is he is going through the following sequence of dishonesties. First, He is pervasively and I think intentionally confusing the fact that somebody cannot prove something to the standards of the criminal law with the thing having not happened. So Bob Mueller cannot prove a conspiracy. Therefore, there was no conspiracy. Or there was no collusion. Well, no, no. That's that's the second step. The second step is to then conflate the absence of criminality with substantive exoneration in a non-criminal sense, right? So you say, okay, there's no conspiracy. And, and by the way, that, that, may, that part may be right. And we interpret that to mean that as a historical, factual, and moral matter, there was no collusion. And you repeat that in a fashion that the president then uses as PR vindication. And then the third element, and this is the one that I think is really – really mischievous, uh, or they're all mischievous, is that you take the absence of the supposed clearing uh, that happens so far, and you use that as evidence of intent with respect to obstruction, i.e., because the president hadn't done anything wrong, we should interpret, when we're thinking about obstruction, all of these 
things that he did that the evidence on his intent looks really bad, we should interpret that intent in light of the underlying fact that he didn't do anything wrong. And I think all three of those sort of jujitsus that he does are deeply, deeply dishonest. They are, I don't like to talk about people's motives, so I will say this in the negative. I can't think of a motive for them other than helping the president in his you know, PR battle against witch hunters. And I add to that the consistent hints and statements that he's made about having concerns about FBI spying and the launch of the investigation. And I am really, really troubled by the conduct of the attorney general. So if, well, if I rather – Susan or Tammy, just to follow up on that, then is he – has he destroyed his credibility as attorney general? Can he effectively go forward and do the job he was hired to do? So I think the answer is no. Bill Barr has completely destroyed his credibility after his performance both in the initial representation of the contents of the Mueller report, his prior congressional testimony, his press conference shortly before the release of the Mueller report, and his testimony today has rendered him incapable of credibly leading the Department of Justice in the future. And if he had any integrity or concern for the future of that institution, he should resign. It is that bad. And it's not just the three-week period or month-long period in which he lied about what the Mueller report said. And again, I don't think it's perjury, but I think it's fair to say he was lying, intentionally attempting to get people to believe something that wasn't true. It is his ongoing misrepresentations. So Barr says he doesn't he didn't want to release uh, information piecemeal, right? And this is his defense for not revealing the full executive summaries that Mueller had prepared, intending them to be made public, saying, no, I was just thinking about this as uh, as if I was giving a verdict decision, right? A prosecutor doesn't get to come to me afterwards and say, but you forgot this great cross-examination that I did. Um, had Bill Barr said, I've received the uh, the special counsel's report, uh, and his principal conclusion is that there is no additional criminal chargeable conduct, period, then that is a defensible statement. What he did was to release information piecemeal intentionally and for the purpose of shaping the PR landscape. Then we get to the substantive judgment about whether or not obstruction of justice took place. We'll set aside for a minute him rendering that judgment and the manner in which he rendered it and the manner in which he characterized the report that came to him as if this were an open question. But setting all that aside, one thing that today's hearing really underscored is the weakness of his substantive judgment on the matter. He was acting like the president's defense attorney today, and his defense sucked. It was based on the idea that you can't have obstruction without the underlying crime. Yeah, that might be an argument in some cases. It has no bearing here, right? It's just, it, it's crystal clear what the president was concerned about, that there was an existence of an investigation. This is a classic case in which you could imagine a statutory obstruction of justice without necessarily having the underlying crime having been committed. By the way, Michael Flynn did commit an underlying crime. So all kinds of things that he was obstructing justice into, there actually was an offense. He just didn't commit it personally. 
But also think about the way he, he defended the president on the facts. So whenever he was pressed for why he didn't think that Trump pressuring Don McGahn to deny the reports that Trump had previously directed McGahn to direct Rod Rosenstein to fire Mueller, which is uh, one of the, the obstructive acts that the special counsel examines, Bill Barr essentially says, well, he didn't, he didn't say fire, right? He would, the president was being accurate, right? He, he didn't say the words fire. Whenever you actually go to the report and, and the quoted language or the paraphrased language, the president says, Mueller can't be special counsel. He needs to go. Call me back when it's done. The idea that the attorney general can say, well, the president didn't mean fire him, and that he can make that representation to the American public, basically counting on, on the fact that lots of people aren't going to read the underlying report, that to me is a degree of lying that uh, it, it makes it difficult to understand how he could represent the department in the future. Okay, but I th I think that goes precisely to Shane's question. Can he do the job that he was appointed to do? Yes, because the job he was appointed to do was not to lead the Department of Justice in the traditional of attorney gen attorneys general who are committed to the impartial rule of law. The job he was appointed to do was to protect President Donald Trump in this investigation. He knew that. He took the nomination to do that. He was asked to take the nomination because he'd already written a memo to Trump's lawyers telling them that he agreed with them that this whole thing was bullshit. And he took the job to do that. And that is what he's done. We, we can now see clearly from the moment he walked in the door as attorney general. He engaged with Mueller in bad faith, because what's clear in that letter that The Post published is that Mueller said in writing, hey, dude, I gave you executive summaries so that you could release them. Why did you write your own letter that misrepresented my executive summaries? So he engaged in bad faith with, with Mueller. He engaged in bad faith with the public. He engaged in bad faith with Congress. His explanations that that both of you just went into in detail, of course they're not credible as explanations to the Senate because he doesn't care if they're credible explanations to the Senate. He only has two concerns. One is to avoid his own criminal culpability, for which reason he's being extremely careful in what he says and doesn't say, and to put out the PR messaging line that Trump and his camp have been putting out from the beginning. That is his sole purpose. And I think he went into this hearing today knowing that no one in the Senate wants to have to deal with impeachment. They have no intention of dealing with impeachment. And therefore, he can get away with this crap. I do think that Bob Mueller himself needs to take some responsibility for this situation because I'm going to just say it really bluntly. Mueller screwed up on the redactions on this report. And, you know, he turned in 448 pages in which there was at the top of every page, this may contain grand jury material. He had made no efforts in advance to segregate the material that would need to be redacted. And in fact, the executive summaries of each volume themselves, at least one of them, does have material that is redacted from it in the final version that got released. And so, I mean, 
Look, I, I say this was knowable. I actually wrote a piece that Mueller needs to create an executive summary that has no grand jury information, that has no, you know, this this was not merely knowable. It was pretty well known. And I, I, I like I think Mueller's failure to produce a document with a segregated section that says this is ready for public release in the opinion of this office is something that he does need to take responsibility but, for. But there's no reason to think that Attorney General Barr, given what we know he has done, would not have sidestepped that as well and still gone forward with what was clearly a political strategy. Perhaps, but but I do think the issue would have been cleaner and simpler had that had well, it happened. And he effectively did eventually say that, but only after Barr had come out and released his right. letter. So what you're saying is you should have said that the, and the, when you transmitted to Barr. In the first right. Place. And, and this goes back to Tammy's point about he, he, Barr didn't engage with Mueller in good faith. And so, yes, Mueller screwed up because he trusted Bill Barr to play it straight. And that was wrong of him. And and yes, there was – it would have been better to have done a clean summary. It would have been better had that two sentences that needed to be temporarily redacted been segregated from the outset. But this letter from Robert Mueller is dated, I think, three weeks before the, the release of the report. For that period of time, he knew exactly what could be publicly released, and he still sat on it anyway. So the idea that, oh, but for him knowing that that this could be publicly releasable, he would have done it, you know, that I, I just don't think we can credit him with that. I think this all gets to the larger question of why? Why is Bill Barr doing this? Right? This is somebody who had uh, a reputation. He previously served as attorney general. He made a big show in his confirmation hearings that he didn't need to be here and and he was doing this sort of for the country and, and you know, he didn't need the gig essentially. If we were now – I just want to – hold the thought. I just want to say if we were one of those highly produced podcasts by, you know – Gimlet, or we would now have a chomping noise, which is the sound of the spider with Trump's face eating <laughs> Bill Barr's soul. Go on. He made this big elaborate point about the fact that he didn't need to be here. And it would have been incredibly easy for him to play this straight. He would have lost nothing. Donald Trump cannot fire another attorney general and get someone else confirmed. And so Bill Barr didn't even especially help the president all that much, as we're seeing in the backlash of the past several days. And so the idea that he is voluntarily setting his reputation on fire for this, what, a few weeks of good publicity, it, it just boggles the mind. I don't understand it. Well, let me pick up there. And actually, this is let's as we do this, let's segue into talking about Rod Rosenstein because it's a natural point. One question I've been having because I'm, I'm – I, it takes Susan's point, and I've been pondering this of like, why is someone behaving in a way that is going to really earn the condemnation from many people in his peer group that presumably both A, thought he was going to act in good faith, B, gave him the benefit of the doubt, and C, you would think that he would not want to disappoint. And I guess I'm left with a question over, you know, I, I think back to. Uh, you know, what Maya Angelou once said, right, which is when people show you who they are, believe them. And I think you have to believe on some level that maybe Bill Barr was in his mind acting in good faith, which is sort of like, I told you I was hostile to the obstruction of justice element. I told you that I didn't agree with the nature of this investigation as it was premised and predicated. I'm doing exactly what I and – and he may feel like he hasn't sold his soul at all, but this is actually for very principled reasons. He I might told even you think I had no soul. Right. He might even think it's good for 
for the country to get this nightmare witch hunt over with. Right. So then if we like pivot just for a second to, you know, the the the, the op-ed by Comey in the Times where Comey is essentially making the argument that otherwise principled people like Bill Barr uh, and Rod Rosenstein, which are clearly people that he once held in high esteem and now he – they have lowered <laughs> in his estimation, um, are corrupted by their proximity to an amoral leader as he puts it. And that what happens is that Trump sort of talks over everyone and he starts spinning this narrative in this web that's premised on lies and half-truths and distortions. And by not speaking up, you kind of become complicit in it and he's spinning the web around you and before you know it, it's too late and you're in the cocoon. I'm not sure that I buy that based on the available evidence with Barr. It does seem like a more plausible argument in the case of Rod Rosenstein. Uh, well, let's, let's take that because uh, what I found interesting about Rod Rosenstein's resignation letter is he went out of his way, it seems to me, to be not only deferential to the president and respectful to him, which you generally expect in a resignation letter, although we haven't seen that from other senior officials who kind of just sign off with a salute and and leave out the fact that they worked for Donald Trump. But he really went and he praised him. He said, uh, I'm grateful to you for the opportunity to serve, for the courtesy and humor you often displayed in our personal conversations, which was kind of a screaming red light to some people, and for the goals you set out in your inaugural address, patriotism, unity, safety, education, and prosperity, because, quote, a nation exists to serve its citizens. Referring back to an inaugural address that I think shocked most people, most Republicans, including who who saw it, I'm reminded of former President George W. Bush, who was caught on a hot mic saying that was some weird shit. Um, and he signs <laughs> off the, uh, the letter saying, we keep the faith, we follow the rules, and we always put America first, which is very clearly a nod to the president. So Rod Rosenstein is a man who the president once tweeted a picture of him in a jail cell. Uh, he is somebody who contemplated wearing a wire to surreptitiously record his conversations with the president. He is someone who, according to news reports, talked with other officials about invoking the 25th Amendment to at least temporarily remove the president from office. It seems to me that if you're buying like the, the Jim Comey argument of what happens to people who serve with the president, Rod Rosenstein looks to me more like somebody who maybe did get his soul sort of devoured. Or I'm not saying he did, Nibbled but it, away. well, he seems that's a more plausible argument, I think, maybe that, than Bill Barr. But Susan, so what do you think? <laughs> I want to offer a defense, a tepid defense, but a defense of Rod Rosenstein, and that is that I don't think it's especially interesting or important the things people say that signal which team they might be on. And there's a lot of focus about comments that Rosenstein may have made that seem friendly to the president or did he quote the president on, on sort of the rule of law and is there sort of this, you know, this ass-kissing element of it, which, yes, it's unseemly, but it's not substantively all that important to me. And I think whenever you strip away a lot of a lot of that, which is a lot of the reason why people are suspicious of Rod Rosenstein, you come down to a very mixed substantive record. And that's that Rod Rosenstein did two really, really important things. He did two really bad things and one kind of bad thing. So the two good things he did was he appointed Robert Mueller as special counsel and he protected the investigation from all accounts, he really did insulate it from efforts to impede uh, or or uh, or end it prematurely. 
That is a tremendous service to the nation. The fact that we have a Mueller report before us right now is thanks to Rod Rosenstein, and we shouldn't underestimate or, or devalue, undervalue the, the meaning of that contribution. On the other side of the ledger, he offered a pretextual reason for the firing of Jim Comey, a serious lapse in basic ethics, basic integrity, and the rule of law as we understand it, right? And, and sort of needing the president to be honest and candid with the American public about why he's doing things, really sort of the original sin. Two, he was way too deferential to congressional requests for information that were designed to harm the department and really were not about good faith or meaningful oversight. And by lacking a backbone in that instance, he set us down a path that I think is going to lead somewhere really bad. And then he ends his tenure with a final error of judgment, which is offering his name to Barr's conclusion that, that, that the Mueller report did not describe criminal obstruction of justice, something that is not defensible on the merits, and he doesn't appear to be prepared to defend on the merits, and two, raises really, really serious questions because we know that Rosenstein was cleared to oversee the Mueller investigation by career ethics officials. Little bit of a puzzler as to why that was the case, but okay, we accepted the judgment of those career officials. It is one thing to oversee an investigation. It is another thing to determine that conduct you personally were involved in does not constitute a crime. That is a separate judgment. It needed a separate review by career ethics officials if he was going to make it. And certainly anyone exercising even minimal judgment would have known uh, not to put their name behind that. And so all that said, it's a really mixed sort of record for him. All right. I First of all, I do think that Rosenstein is a better example of the soul eating by small bites than Barr. If Barr's soul has been eaten, it was eaten in one big chomp. Um, but <laughs> but, but was Rosenstein's was nibbled away. That said, I think it's odd, actually, for Comey to uh, make this argument about Rosenstein. And the reason I think that is because of a conversation I had with Jim right at the time that Rod – right before Rod was confirmed as deputy attorney general – and I think uh, I wrote wrote about that conversation at the time for Lawfare and people keep quoting it now. But it's pretty clear to me that Jim had some serious questions about Rod's soul at that point as well. And so like I, I was kind of enthusiastic about, hey, here's a career guy who's about to get confirmed. And I'd known Rod for a long time and sort of thought reasonably highly of him in a, in a ill-considered or sort of not very considered sort of way. And I sort of made an offhand reference, well, you'll get some Senate-confirmed leadership. That'll be good. And expecting Jim to be sort of like pleased about it. And he was uh, extremely reticent about Rod at the time. This was before any of this happened. And I'll never forget it. What he said was, Rod is a survivor and you don't get to survive that long without making compromises. And so he was already thinking at, you know, before Rod Rosenstein was even confirmed about what little pieces of him Trump was going to eat. So that's point number one. Point number two is 
I look, I have been vacillated at different times about how to understand Rod's performance. Um, I've defended him at times. I called for his resignation at times. So I'm not a model of consistency here by any means. But I think at this point, the uh, balance on Rod has to be pretty negative. And the reason for that is that, first of all, everything that people are criticizing Bill Barr for now, Rod Rosenstein is involved with. There, there is no component of this that he is, you know, the, the attorney general is representing that these are judgments he made in conjunction with the deputy attorney general. And the deputy attorney general is not saying, well, wait a minute, I had nothing to do with that. I didn't agree with that. So I think we have to impute these decisions that people are associating with Bill Barr to both of them, at least Rod as a sort of junior partner in it. Uh, and the final component is that I actually do think the accretion of these little suck-ups that he's doing to the president matter a lot. And I, I was particularly offended by the language that you quoted uh, about their per the president's and Rod's personal conversations. Uh, deputy attorneys general and the president do not have personal conversations. And uh, most people most of the time cannot name the deputy attorney general. And by the way, it's an interesting question around the table. How many deputies attorney general could we collectively name? I think I can name them all, but I'm not sure. Like these are – this is not an especially high profile position and it's not a position that involves – going in and out of the Oval Office and having personal conversations with the president. And for Rod to be saying that is basically saying, in this letter to Trump, I let myself be co-opted by you and I'm pleased about that. So please make sure that Fox News does not blast me in so that I'm unable to have a future career. And I think that is – I don't know a good word for it. So let's use the word despicable. One thing I find myself wondering when I read Comey's op-ed is if Jim Comey had not been fired and he were still being serving as the FBI director, does he think his soul would still be intact? How would he be proposing to keep this soul-eating president from attacking him? I mean, and I don't mean I'm not trying to imply that he wouldn't, but I wonder sometimes if it's easy for Comey to judge people from the distance that he has and if sometimes we are Maybe we don't see the full picture of everything that a Rod Rosenstein or a Bill Barr has had to put up with. So maybe you don't see the moments when they were standing on the rampart and did the right thing. I'm not proposing to defend anyone here, but it is – I know it's not easy for Jim Comey to sort of have to, to, to launch these, these criticisms against people that he once respected. But he does have the benefit of not being in the spider's web anymore. And, and he has the benefit of having been fired. He didn't even have to make right. the decision to quit in the face of being asked to do something that might be soul-sucking. That was actually, to be honest, my first reaction when I saw the op-ed was how lucky for him that he got fired and he can write this. Well, well and he offers Mattis as an example of somebody who sort of preserves his principle. That said, Mattis's tenure had uh, lots of examples of serious compromises. And, and I don't know that he came exactly. out with his reputation intact. And, and I do think, and Comey's certainly not the only person guilty of this, but there is a little bit of a rewriting of history about Jim Mattis's tenure as well. Okay. But I do think that the fundamental story of Comey's and Trump's four months in office together was 
the compromises that Comey didn't make. And the reason Comey got fired was that he refused to do certain things. And by the way, query whether they're things that once the, once the monster is eating your soul, you actually do do. And so I, I, I do think that is worth putting on the table. But also, I just you know want to say, and I don't doubt that this is true of Rod Rosenstein as well, but when I last saw Comey while he and Trump were in office together, this was a person under immense professional stress. And he told me very directly, it's going to be a very long four years. And he told me as well that the I, I was at the time tweeting every day, you know, notes from under Trump day X. And he said, you know, it's ticking really slowly. And so like, it's a hard grind. Okay, but to me, that actually emphasizes the point. Okay, he was settling in to survive this for four years, knowing that he was going to be asked to do all kinds of things and have to make the choice about is this the hill on which I want to die? Now, in the event, he didn't have to make that choice because the president made it for him out of an abundance of paranoia, vindictiveness, uh, desire to obstruct, whatever it may have been. But he never actually reached his limit. He got canned. Because um, he said no. He, he got canned because the president wasn't even willing to get to the point of having him say no directly to his face. Comey never said no directly to his face. He never got there because he wasn't there long enough. And he got fired. He didn't have to quit. And this is something that we've talked about from the very beginning of the administration. If Now, he was, he was in a term position across administrations. But for people who choose to go in like Rod Rosenstein, they may go in saying, I'm there to stand on the ramparts and stop horrible things from happening. But every day they face pressures and choices and have to decide what they're going to compromise on behalf of what. There are no angels here, none, zero. And Jim Comey may have standing different from these other guys because he got fired four months into the administration. But that's not... That that doesn't mean that faced with the same situation over a long period of time, if he had gotten fired today, that we wouldn't be talking about him the same way we're talking about Rod Rosenstein. Right. But they're not similarly situated. Jim Comey got fired because the president wanted him to issue a public statement about the Russia investigation and he didn't do it. And the president, in a, a rage about this not happening and him not getting what he wants, fired the FBI director because he didn't get what he want from him. What did he want from Rod Rosenstein that he hasn't gotten? So I have a final question sort of maybe for you, Shane. And that's if in terms of the successfulness of Trump's obstructive efforts, if Comey is never fired and therefore Robert Mueller is never appointed today, do the, would the American people know more or less about what occurred, both in terms of obstruction, I guess the later obstruction wouldn't have happened, right? Or would we be better or worse off in terms of actually knowing about Trump's conduct? Oh, I suspect we would know less because we wouldn't have had a special counsel who then investigated the questions of conspiracy, revealed evidence of collusion. I mean, I think if we're taking the, the literal meaning of the word, I think he found evidence of collusion. So we probably wouldn't have known. It would have, I presume, stayed an FBI criminal 
matter and the special counsel wouldn't have come in and there wouldn't have been the external forces coming to bear on it to force it out into to public view. That said, I mean, <clears throat> sort of if, we were, if it's a choose your own adventure book and we go the other way, you know, there might have been some whole other, you know, morass that we got caught up in. But I think it's a, it's a, it's a fair point. I mean, the firing of Jim Comey in ways that we couldn't appreciate at the time sets in motion a sequence of events that result in a 448-page document that is, to my mind, the most authoritative and vivid depiction of what goes on inside the Trump administration, particularly on matters of decision-making and the rule of law. So, you know, that's it's, it's, that's the sliding door moment that we had, I guess. <laughs> um, <clears throat> let's, let's go deeper into the web, shall we? Um, uh, there was a really interesting profile this week in The New Yorker by Dexter Filkins of John Bolton, the national security advisor, uh, follows on another also very interesting profile that Graham Wood did in The Atlantic last month. Uh, and, and really what this is is trying to portray an account of someone who I think we all know very well. I mean, John Bolton is actually probably – one of the more well-known and certainly while he is maybe on the, the, the fringes of, of, of conservative foreign policy is certainly someone with a pedigree and a track record and who I think everyone would agree is a, you know, a credible representative of a certain strain of foreign policy thinking and has served in senior positions in the government. But now he finds himself in this most improbable storyline working for Donald Trump. Tammy, one of the things that it seemed to me was a kind of a key conflict – that Filkins is wrestling with in this piece, and it's still kind of unsettled, is that Bolton is an interventionist and the president is not. And Bolton has to figure out how to operate in that environment and still have influence. And it is very clear from this portrayal and from Graham Wood's profile too that um, he intends to use the authorities of his position to wield influence however, whenever he can and on his own terms. Uh, and that has clearly come up against the president. Well, you can take North Korea as an example probably. So what did you think of that? And I mean what do we, what do we learn about how Bolton is you know, is being Bolton with a president who, you know, really is not cut from that cloth, I think. Yeah, I think that there have been some depictions of Bolton's role in the administration in some more ideologically tinged foreign policy analysis that he's some kind of neocon Svengali, right, that he's going to persuade or cajole or provoke or fool the president into a war. And what I took away from this Dexter Filkins piece that I thought was really fascinating was that there really isn't that kind of asymmetry in this relationship, that it's very clear from the beginning that Bolton is not the president's first choice, that the president likes certain things about him but really doesn't like other things about him, including his tendencies on use of force, and that the president was very upfront with Bolton about that all the way along when he didn't become secretary of state, when he didn't become national security advisor the first time. And that wonderful quote in the article of Trump telling McMaster when he calls him up to say goodbye, Bolton's going to get us into a war. So even at the moment that he gives the guy the job, he knows what he mistrusts about him. It's an interesting indicator, actually, of how Trump does judge people's character. He understands who he who he's standing in front of him. Now, the other thing we learn about John Bolton from this profile is that not only is he a man of 
fixed views that were fixed quite early in life and that he has stuck to with rugged determination throughout his foreign policy career, but also that he is just a relentless bureaucratic warrior. Not just the stories about how he misused intelligence or attempted to mischaracterize intelligence during the Bush administration uh, in the first term of, of George W. Bush, but also the stories that are that are in this piece about his time at the UN and how he would send his career staff back to push interlocutors in the UN system harder and harder and harder to get closer and closer to the deal that he was really looking for. And I think if you take this picture of John Bolton as a guy of fixed views who believes that that at the end of the day, there are some problems that can only be solved with force. Korea is one and Iran is another. That he is willing to just wear away the president like water on a stone. Um, He's not going to cajole him or provoke him or fool him into a war. He's just going to press his views relentlessly and let the president fail at everything else and then just come back and hammer him again and again. And he seems to recognize, at least in his interviews with Filkins, that he may not succeed. But for him, the game is, you know, fighting the good fight. I thought that was fascinating, too. You you sense a guy who does have an appreciation of his own limitations based on who he's working for, and he doesn't seem to be fooling himself about that. Susan, another thing that struck me, too, that was so interesting about him, and when we've known this – a bit from reporting about how John Bolton never con- never convenes principles committees meetings, which are the heads of the intelligence agencies and the ODS secretaries, the chiefs of staff and the president when they get together to make the big kind of final decisions traditionally after everything has come up through layers of different committees through the interagency process. John Bolton doesn't play in any of that. In fact, his door is closed literally, <laughs> we're told, uh, to his office so that he is not consulting with the DNI, with the secretaries of state and defense. And it seems like he is someone who's trying to, if not consolidate power, uh, sort of close his door to the outside world and advance policy on his own. I mean, it almost seems like he's a man who's also realizes that his, his time is limited and he's, he's sure as hell not going to waste it meeting with people who might dilute his authority. Right. And, and the fundamental job of the national security advisor is that precise that, function yes. <laughs> to convene, whether you want to call yeah. it a principal meetings or not, to coordinate the various national security right. elements of the United States government to ensure that they're all rowing in the same direction, that information is flowing up into the into the White House and that it's going back out, doing that coordinating function. Uh, essentially, what this article depicts is that that's just not happening. Of John Bolton in a room who's making up his mind on how he feels about things, attempting to influence the president or not, and then maybe some other in- Individuals are getting sort of, you know, Pompeo or others are getting their 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 chance to uh, to influence the president. We should probably note that there is no Secretary of Defense right now. Uh, there's no Homeland Security Secretary. There's not even a nominee for either of those uh, roles right now. That's a little bit of a problem when you have somebody like John Bolton in, by the way, an unconfirmed position. Right. So this talks a little bit about uh, how implausible him being confirmed as Secretary of State was. The other thing is I do think that this article makes a little bit of news um, in the sense that it it says that of the 25 security clearances that reportedly the president or somebody in the White House overruled career officials on, uh, that at least that the the House Oversight Committee has asked to see Bolton's personnel files uh, as part of that, and reportedly because he's uh, he's done work on behalf of the MEK. 
He had all kinds of connections with the NRA, including on the very uh, Russia gun control matters that Maria Butina ended up becoming he spoke indicted at a conference for, for that Maria she Butina. Organized. Yeah. yeah, exactly. That he was uh, that he was paid uh, by the foundation controlled by the Ukrainian oligarch, who was the person who reportedly paid Greg Craig to do the Ukraine report. So. In a weird way, Bolton's kind of knee deep in all kinds of really, really questionable stuff. So I do think one question that um, that is sort of lingering out there, and I hadn't seen it before this article, though maybe somebody else has reported it, is how does John Bolton have a security clearance? Is anybody talking about this? <laughs> yes. there, Seems so there, like kind of an issue. He, this has been lingering out there for a while, and Filkins kind of puts a finer point on it, too. Uh, and coalesces some other reporting into it. And this this has been a question of whether or not John Bolton was one of the people who could not either get a clearance or if maybe he had it, get the renewal and that the president may have had to intervene precisely because of these financial engagements, which Philkin spends a long section in the report documenting. John Bolton has made a lot of money in the private sector. At one point, he made $2 million a year. And while Philkins doesn't say it because I think he's trying to be you know, very fair in this piece, there is an implication that he has assessed John Bolton to be someone who will say almost anything for money, uh, who made $6 million going on Fox News, who takes money from the MEK, who all these different interests. 60 op-eds a year, right? which is basically like – Tell me what you want an op-ed on. I'll write it. Right. And I mean, and I think we presume that like he believes the things that he's saying, but he has been someone who has been, you know, entrepreneurial uh, in the extreme and seeking yeah. out these opportunities. And that clearly may have been something that triggered a problem with his security clearance. I think it also raises, you know, some questions about, you know, what he's willing to do in the private sector and how far he's willing to go and what he's willing to say in order to, you know, to make a buck. That seems to be Filkins's assessment. Yeah. So I am handicapped in this discussion because I actually have not read the article. <gasps> I didn't what? do the homework. Well, at least you're honest about um, but it. But I am fessing up. That said, I want to say one half of a very cautious word in defense of John Bolton. And it is the following. Uh, There are a number of things that are missing from the current White House. One of them is competence. And one thing John Bolton is, is competent. He is somebody who uh, is, in fact, something of a bureaucratic power player. He is uh, extremely effective to the point that his foes in the Bush administration have a they have a mingled combination of hatred and awe of him because he's in fact relentlessly competent. The second thing is he is uh, while he is extremely ideological, his ideology, as you point out, is not the president's, and so there is very little risk of his in enacting his own crazy ideology. Uh, but there is actually some degree of promise in his being one of the forces that is capable of slowing or stopping nutty things that the president wants to do precisely at a time that other such people have been purged and removed from the White House. And so I think uh, there is some reason to say, look, the, the security clearance stuff, if he is you know, a security risk, that's a different set of issues. But I think on the other side of the ledger, the sort of substantive side of the ledger, I'm kind of glad he's there. And there is this, uh, not because I have any admiration for John Bolton or like John Bolton, but because I think he's actually capable 
of doing things that the president doesn't like effectively. And I want to cite one example of them of this, of which there was a, a significant New York Times story, which was that the president was going to go to the NATO summit and everybody was seriously afraid that he was going to blow up NATO with some crazy statement. And Bolton worked for weeks uh, in advance of that summit to quietly pre-cook the entire communique so that it was basically done before anybody got there so that the president couldn't screw it up. And, you know, I think there is, look, I don't want to say he's a good guy. I don't like the MEK. I don't like a lot of the activity that he's engaged in. But I do think he may be somebody who has a constructive role to play in this environment despite himself. Yeah, I think despite himself is a good way to put it, Ben, because I feel like he he is someone who knows the bureaucracy and he knows the foreign policy apparatus and he has enough authority that he could stop stupid things as long as he sees stopping those stupid things as in line with his views. Um, and so it's just if there's a coincidence of interests there, then he's the right man at the right time. But I think that he's defined the, his role as national security advisor, you know, which is to give the best advice possible to the president in order to make national security decisions. He's defined the way to do that as listening to John Bolton, not as running a process that's fair and raises, you know, all of the potential permutations and what could go wrong and contingencies and alternatives. Listening to John Bolton is enough. It's really all you need to do. And I think that his kind of cold-hearted assessment that he may not agree with this president, but he can use this president on behalf of his own goals is really the strongest takeaway from what we've seen. And so on NATO, I would say, OK, yes, you're right. He's done that. And things with NATO could be a lot worse. But for Bolton's grudging, you know, desire to maintain a transatlantic alliance. But I think the the quote in this article that's going to stick with me for a long time is from a former aide of his, a guy named Groombridge, who says, John is thinking. To, of course, that's the person's right. name. <laughs> John is thinking to the extent I can modify or mollify the president's actions, I will. He is truly a patriot his former aide says. But I wonder how he goes into work every day because deep in his heart, he believes the president is a moron. So the national security advisor believes the president is a moron and the president believes the national security advisor is a warmonger. And that is just not a recipe for good policy. But maybe it cancels each other out <laughs> and, the react and the answer is really nothing happens and it all kind of migrates down to the agency level. That's the hope. Trump, Trump <laughs> ate Bolton's soul and then pff, spit it out. <laughs> too tough. Must, too mustache. Too tough. Too much hair in it. Uh, let's move on to object lessons. Um, uh, I'll go first, actually. Um, so uh, this week on Monday, I had the great pleasure of going down and spending a little time on Capitol Hill and watching a number of high school students from different states compete in the We the People program, which is a program where students from all across the country, um, they essentially go and they participate in effectively kind of like mock hearings where they are given a question of 
incredible depth and complexity about the Constitution. And they're given it in advance. They're going to prepare an answer to it. And then they are grilled extemporaneously by judges uh, about the, the nuances and the intricacies of their position on like really like philosophically deep questions about the Constitution and what it means. And when I say judges, by the way, I mean like literal judges in some cases are up there uh, grilling them. And I did this because actually our very own Jen Patia Howell participates in this program. She's the co-executive director of VA Civics or Virginia Civics, which is the um, the group that supports uh, um, students going to the sponsors of the We the People program in the state of Virginia. And I'm very happy to be a volunteer advisor to that group. So if you ever thought that civics is not being taught in high school, go seek out this program. It is extraordinary what these kids are able to do. We're talking about, even the judges said this, analytical uh, discussions and conversations, again, of an extemporaneous nature that are beyond what you would imagine PhD students talking about in some cases. It was extraordinarily uh, impressive. Uh, And if you want to support any of uh, Virginia's efforts, you can go to vacivics.org. And if you're looking to support efforts in your own state, you can go to the Center for Civic Education's website, civiced.org, and find your state sponsor. Check it out. Uh, So cool. All right. So while we're doing little uplifting stories about democracy, I want to let our listeners know about the launch of something called Dem Tools, um, which are apps and uh, open source software to help civil society groups across the world, not only in the United States, organize and um, reach out to people and run campaigns and report problems to government and otherwise participate in democracy. And, you know, we've talked a lot over the course of this podcast about the way the balance has shifted from technology at first empowering individuals and people power to technology empowering autocrats and corporations and things like that. And so now the, you know, now there's an asymmetry in the direction of those with power. And Dem Tools, which is a project of the National Democratic Institute on on whose board I serve, full disclosure, is basically an attempt to kind of rebalance and give civil society activists new tools. It's all open source. There's there's a contact management system to help reach out to your uh, NGO members. There's Fix My Community is an app. Um, there's an app to manage election data. There's a civic education gaming platform. And it's really, really cool. Um, so check it out. Ben. So my object lesson today in the log rolling department is uh, the current episode of the Lawfare podcast, which features a conversation that I had on Monday with uh, Anthony Cormier and Jason Leopold of BuzzFeed News. And it is a kind of uh, retrospective kind of after action report on their January, a postmortem, you might say, on their uh, January 2019 famous, infamous story where they reported that the president had uh, directed Michael Cohen to lie to Congress. And of course, uh, this is the only story in the history of the Mueller investigation that the special counsel's office actually issued a statement taking issue with and saying that certain unspecified portions of it were inaccurate. And uh, it is also we are now in a position to revisit it because the Mueller report says what Mueller thinks 
the reality is. And so I sat down with Jason and Anthony to talk through kind of how they made the how that what their reporting was, how they got where they got, and to what extent they think they made errors and how they evaluate those errors in retrospect. And it's a it's a super uh, interesting conversation and a super candid one on on their parts. Uh, and so I urge people to, among other things, it's an interesting uh, portrait of how journalism in this area gets done, which you often don't get to see. Oh, Susan. So my object lesson is a chart. The highlight of Bill Barr's hearing today um, was whenever Senator Blumenthal's staff brought out this very large depiction uh, of the uh, evidence that Donald Trump obstructed justice. Uh, and it, it was actually the uh, the chart formed by one Quinta Jurassic, the managing editor of yeah. Lawfare. Uh, it, it elicited great uh, fanfare and rejoicing in the Lawfare offices. Data um, visualization for the win. It's what, it's what the <laughs> King's institution might call impact, uh, <laughs> seeing it up there. Um, and so, one, it was delightful to be able to make fun of Quinta as this being, you know, the highlight of, of her existence. And also uh, was just a, a moment of pride uh, seeing sort of Lawfare's work up there, uh, you know, making a difference in a Senate hearing. Bill Barr was very flustered in response. He did not appear to have a good answer. Um, and I would uh, commend not just the chart to you all, but also the underlying analysis that she wrote for a lawfare uh, about what the Mueller report says on this on these topics because um, uh, I think it's a really important point. Yeah, and it's and, it, and the chart looks great. And, it does. It's yeah. a it's a good looking it's chart. It's a really good chart. It should have did awesome work there. Uh, all right. Well, my chart says we're at the end of the podcast. Aww. Rational Security is, of course, a production. I know it's so sad every time. It's a production of Lawfare. You can find our show page at lawfareblog.com. You can buy charts and hats. Maybe not charts. Not yet. Maybe not we'll yet. put the chart on a hat. Maybe we'll put the chart on a shirt. At lawfarechartstore.com, is it? <laughs> yeah. Thelawfarestore.com. <laughs> you can download the, or follow us on Twitter at RATL Security. You can find us on Facebook uh, whenever you download the podcast from Stitcher or iTunes or your favorite service. Please remember to leave us a rating and review. It helps other people find the podcast. Our audio engineer this week was Matthew Kahn. Our show is produced and edited by the aforementioned awesome Jen Patia Howell. Music this week by Bill Barr and the Soul Food Players. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Get Good. your soul food joke yep. back in. Got, okay. got the soul food joke back <laughs> in. With, with their top 40 billboard hit, uh, Tiny Bites of Soul. <laughs> 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 that actually sounds like something that could use some Sophia Yan backup. Oh, um, yeah. Her soul is well intact. On behalf of my good friends Tamara Kaufman Wittis, Ben Wittis, and Susan Hennessy, I'm Shane Harris. We'll talk to you next week. Save chomp, your souls. chomp, chomp. 